what do you want for Christmas? What do you want for Christmas? How many of you have been asked this question so far? Let's see. Ooh, a lot of people. A lot of people already. Um, so it, it's getting to be that time of year, and people are going to be asking you this question. What do you want for Christmas? Here's what I found, and you can tell me if you've had this experience too. What I have found is that when someone asks me this question, I sit back and I begin to think of all the things I would like. And I begin to realize that everything I would like that I don't already have is too expensive for someone to buy me as a gift. (laughs) And everything that I would like that is cheap enough for someone to buy me as a gift, I have already bought for myself. Have you had this sort of experience? Well, I try not to think about things that I want because I found that in my life, thinking about these things has dangerous consequences. For example, it was two years ago, Christmas, well, before Christmas, that I got that same uh, dangerous question, uh, what do I want for Christmas? Well, my mind began thinking and spinning of all the different tools and books and electronic gadgets that would be cool, and I began thinking and thinking, and before long, I had come up with a list of things that I would never give to somebody because they were all way too expensive, and I wasn't even sure if I wanted them anyways. And so I quickly drafted a list of cheaper items, and I sent that along as my list. So the task was done, but the real list was uh, still up there in my mind, and at the top of it that year was a laptop. Now, we had a very functional computer and even a tablet and even a really old laptop that was getting a little too slow for today's programs, but the computer and the tablet worked great for us. But I knew that the laptop would provide some couch-comfortable entertainment that uh, the tablet could not. And it was becoming increasingly the case that different members of our family were using the computer or the tablet. Sometimes it was homework, sometimes a recipe, sometimes the kids were getting their screen time. And what I found is that I was not getting entertainment exactly when I wanted it and where I wanted it. Now, now I'm slow to buy stuff because I, I know that sometimes my do- desires, they go in cycles. And so, you know, it might be a couple months later and I, I, I want something totally different. And so I let the idea sit for a few more months. I'd actually already been thinking about this for several months, um, getting a laptop. But I didn't want to get carried away in the holiday materialistic rush. You know... So I waited, and I tried to keep myself from getting sucked in. I wanted to keep Christmas pure, pure from the I want this and the I want that. And I held strong, and I did not buy it for myself that Christmas. But I took a look at the date of purchase uh, this week, and I bought that laptop on January 4th. So uh, I was a bit late to the game that year, but this practice, uh, it actually has a name in the shopping world. Um, They call it self-gifting. People ask you what you want for Christmas, all the things you really want they cannot reasonably buy for you, and so you buy them for yourself. According to the National Retail Federation, the average individual American plans to spend $140 on themselves this year, 2016. 
That's $280 per couple. And keep in mind, this is a survey where they self-report what they plan to spend on themselves. (laughs) And we all know how that goes, right? I'm planning to spend this much. Nowadays in America, we know that materialism and desire for possessions is a problem for us. And most people that I talk to try to mitigate this, this problem in their own lives. You know, you probably do this. But do you ever feel like the desire for possessions sometimes just gets so strong that you have a tough time holding it back? Do you ever feel like the holiday season, though you want it to be about Jesus, and you want it to be about, you know, family and good memories, do you ever feel like, even though you want it to be about those things, the strong desire for possessions just kind of creeps in, and maybe sometimes even takes over the celebration? Well, the Bible has a word for this strong desire for possessions that we sometimes feel, and it is the word covet. And we don't talk about it or think about it as much, but there's one of the Ten Commandments that is totally dedicated just to it. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Since it is often true that this coveting desire kind of creeps in during this holiday season, we're going to look at this commandment and consider today how we can build a fence around our lives to keep out this coveting sort of desire. The first principle for building this fence that we're going to build today is that, is, is that to keep out coveting desire, we need to be aware of our desires and submit them to God. We need to be aware of our desires and submit them to God. This principle has been reinforced to me through the experience of parenting, and especially through the experience of parenting our youngest child, Peter. Peter's about two years old right now, and he has a lot of... He has so many desires, and they're strong desires too. And in the, course, in the course of home life, there will be times when Peter will throw a fit when he does not get what he wants. And because his language abilities aren't quite developed yet, it can be a little bit difficult to figure out what he is saying. He doesn't enunciate very well when he speaks, and he's, he's often leaving the consonants off of words. It, 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 it's sometimes, sometimes tough to figure out, but you know, sometimes it's something simple where he just... Um, he wants to keep playing cars instead of getting his diaper changed. Um, sometimes it's something more complicated, like he wants the piece of food that's on the other side of the table, and he doesn't want it chopped up into pieces. He wants the big one, big one. And, uh, and, he, and he also would like the red sauce with it. Um, and so it's, it's kind of hard to figure out. But what I've learned in parenting is that it's very important to figure out, first figure out what it is that he wants and bring it to the surface of our dialogue so that we can deal with it. Because once we know what he really wants, then we can talk about if it's something that he can have or if it's something that he can't have. Sometimes he just wants to bring a car with him to the changing table, uh, which is okay. Sometimes he wants to keep playing with the cars and not get a diaper changed. That's not okay. Um, It's similar with us because we must first be aware of our desires in order to bring them before the presence of God and ask him, is this okay? If we feel frustrated and we just don't know why, I've learned with the kids, that's not a situation that's going to go very well. The the Tenth Commandment we need to point out is the first and the only commandment to deal with something deeper than our actions. 
You've got don't steal, don't lie, don't worship idols, lots of actions. But in the 10th commandment, the one that is often forgotten, God commands our desire. Desire. He makes a command for the thoughts, feelings, and inner movements of our heart. And many people who have looked at these Ten Commandments have suggested that it's actually this Tenth Commandment that is the underpinning for all of the others. The idea is that if you don't desire your neighbor's spouse, then you won't go on to commit adultery. If you don't desire your neighbor's donkey, then you won't go on to steal it. And so, thinking of these things, James talks very clearly about how our desires are the source of our disobedience to God. Let's just take a look at what he says. James 4 says this, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires, the battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. James tells us that our sins, our mistakes in life, often start with our desires. Desires are the starting point. But the problem is that desire is a part of life. You can't get away from it. Desire is a part of how we are made, right? You can't just say, I'm not going to have, I'm going to go through life without desires. You know, they just spring up out of nowhere. And some of them are good, and some of them are not so good. And so we need to submit our desires to the instructions and leadership of God. Submitting is actually a nice way of putting it. This is how Paul says it. He's a lot more bold. Galatians 5, he says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Crucified. We need to be aware of our desires, and we need to take our desires and submit them to God's leadership. And when we do this, we will know better which desires can stay within the fence and which ones need to be kicked out and crucified. Our second principle for building this fence to keep out coveting desire is to guard your heart by regularly self-examining your heart. Proverbs 4.23 says this, Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Coveting desire, like the rest of the commandments, is a, is a commandment that is tough to live with in our current culture. We look at how the, how the world is viewing possessions and we say... Everybody else does this. Because of this, it's so easy to walk down this path toward coveting desire. And because that's so easy, we've got to put up a fence. And we must reevaluate the desires that we've let inside the fence already. Coveting desire, sometimes it just slips in. And it's easy to justify what we're doing because, once again, this is what everybody does. And I've always done it this way. Let's look a little closer at the commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, as you look at this, what is the question you're asking about this verse? If you really want to obey this command, you want to know what does covet mean? That's a reasonable question. The Hebrew word is kamad. And yes, it does, it's not just desire. It means strong desire. It means to treasure something, to consider it precious. And when it is used in the Bible, it is almost always negative. It is a bad type of desire. 
Now, if you look at the commandment, you might be led to wondering if this commandment is all about wanting things that you can't have. And as long as you're wanting things that you can have, then you're in the clear. Let's take a look at this idea um, for a moment. It is true that if you, your neighbor's wife is off limits because of God's command. But when we look at some of these other things, especially the comment, anything that belongs to your neighbor, well, that's pretty clear. We're not just talking about things that you aren't allowed to have, right? One day a man comes to Jesus and he says, tell my brother to give me my share of the inheritance. The inheritance is probably his, right, rightly his. At least some of it should be probably his. But Jesus responds, watch out and be on your guard against all types of coveting desire. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. You see, the commandment is not just about things that you can't have. Or, you know, you may be thinking, perhaps the commandment is referring only to stuff that my neighbor owns, and those things aren't for sale, but the stuff in the store is for sale, so if I'm really just strongly desiring something in the store, that's okay. What about stuff in the stores? Now, I want you to bear in mind here that this commandment is approximately 5,000 years old. <laughs> 5,000 years old. And in their culture, especially having wandered in the desert for the last 40 years, wandering in the desert, how many stores do you think they had? (laughs) God didn't mention the things in the stores because that wasn't relevant to their lives. Predominantly, and here's the thing, predominantly they would have been buying and selling stuff between households. Wandering in the desert for 40 years, that's how they would have bought and sold stuff. So yes, things that could be bought and sold are included here. Anything that belongs to your neighbor. So we see here that it's not just about desiring things that you can't have because they belong to your neighbor and he won't sell them to you. It's not just about things that your neighbor has and it doesn't count for the things in the store. This commandment at its essence is about desiring possessions. And, and even, it's, it's really just mostly about desire. And so if you want to follow God's command you're probably finding yourself asking the question, how much desire is too much desire? Or what kinds of desire are the wrong kinds of desire? How do I know when I'm in the clear, or when I've you know, stepped into this coveting sort of desire? And that's a reasonable question. That is a good, honest question. If I go to the supermarket to buy a turkey for our Thanksgiving dinner, and I see that there is this bigger, juicier, somewhat more expensive Um, turkey option, and I'd really like to get the nicer turkey for our family. Is that coveting desire? If I'm wanting to get a swing for the porch to sit out and enjoy the fall weather, is that coveting desire? If I've already got chairs to enjoy the fall weather, does that change things? I see a sweater in a magazine or in a store display, and it's, it's nice, it's a little out of my price range. Is that coveting desire? What if it's in my price range? How about a Fitbit, a gift card to your favorite store, a virtual reality gaming system, a coach purse, iPhone 7? It's not about the object, is it? It's about the condition of our hearts. And this is what it's always going to be about for God, just so you know. It's all over the Bible. You can't get away from it if you're reading your Bible. What is the condition of your heart? Well, we need some way to self-examine our hearts um, so that we can protect our hearts from greed and coveting desire. 
and expose these things when they've creeped into our lives. And we also, we also don't want to be left feeling guilty when, when our desires are okay, God-pleasing desires. We don't want to feel that way. Well, I've given you some questions to self-examine your heart, and I want you to take a look at them with me. They're actually on the bottom of your outline that's in the bulletin, so let's take a look at them. How much time are you thinking about it? This question is all about measuring the strength of the desire. If you're thinking about it a lot, if it's often coming to mind, then that's a fairly strong desire. The strength of our desire for possession should always be relative to the true value of those possessions. In God's economy, possessions just aren't all that valuable, especially when you compare them to what God really considers valuable, which are people. Second question, are you treasuring it before you even own it? Are you treasuring it before you even own it? This question is about assigning value to things. Possessions should have value to us because they are gifts from God. Worth and value is derived from God. For example, I I treasure our house. We live uh, across from Watkins High School in a development. We have a nice uh, ranch house situated around a bunch of trees and uh, it's end of a quiet cul-de-sac. There are a lot of things I treasure about our house. I love how it keeps us warm in the winter. I, uh, I like that there's this large living room with lots of room for the kids to play in. I love the trees and the scenery. It was a HUD home, and so we got it at a discount, and I, I really appreciate the lower cost of the house. You know, it eases our finances, so we don't have to live on the edge of our finances. This also means that it's a fixer-upper, but I've, I've come to learn how to treasure that part of our house, too. Our uh, electric water heater was leaking, and so I replaced it with an energy-efficient gas one. I did the work myself, and every time I wash my hands, I, uh, I just think about the work I put into the project and how much money we're saving. Yeah. I treasure our house because I feel like it's a gift from God. I treasure it because it reminds me of God's love in my life. How he cares for me. I don't treasure it simply because it has financial value. On the spectrum of houses, the house itself doesn't really have all that much value. But the gift-giving experience makes it a very valuable thing to me. So that's how we treasure a lot of these things in our lives. But, But sometimes we begin to treasure things that are not a part of our lives. And that is where the function and practice of treasuring something gets corrupted. Ask yourself, am I treasuring this when I don't really even own it? Am I beginning to assign it a lot of value in my life when it is really just a possession and it's not even mine to treasure? Is it something you can't have? Third question. Is it something you can't have? You take a drive through the countryside. A friend has you over to their new house. It's a mansion, beautiful house, beautiful landscaping, everything wonderful. But you look at your life, and as you look at your life, you just know you are never going to be able to afford a house like that. Never. Don't desire it at all. You can appreciate its beauty and its niceties, uh, and, but, but, but keep all those things in perspective. In the grand scheme of life, grand scheme of life, those things just don't really matter They're that much. They're not that great. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Don't frustrate your heart desiring something that you can't have. Fourth question, imagine your life without it. Is that a happy picture? 
This is an important question because it gets to the heart of contentment. Here's the truth. Your life without this or that given possession should always be a happy picture. If you treat the various things and people and experiences you have in this life as a gift from God, then it's always a happy picture. The picture's only unhappy without the gift when we've placed upon the gift the promise to finally make our lives deeply happy. And gifts don't do that. Only God does that. Fifth question, is it a gift or am I getting it mostly to feed my desire? Let's go back to our turkey in the supermarket example. We can see that the extra big, extra juicy, extra expensive turkey is not just something for ourselves. It is a gift for the family to share. When you get a big screen TV, you can get that thinking of all the wonderful times you'll spend you know, watching a movie as a family. And it's truly a gift for the family. Sometimes, though, it's like, here, honey, I got you the 60-inch TV so you can watch football with me. <laughs> That's not a gift. <laughs> so is it a gift? It can also be a gift in this sense. Let's say there's a single guy living on his own, and maybe he really likes seafood. For whatever reason, he set his heart on eating some lobster. But his financial situation is such that he could never really justify buying a lobster. But one year he set some financial goals for himself and he meets those goals. And so to celebrate, he's decided to cook um, and enjoy a lobster. He buys it totally for himself, but goes home thanking God for the circumstances that have brought him to this point. And he savors that lobster meal. It's totally for himself, but it's totally a gift from God. So ask yourself, is this a gift, or am I getting it mostly to feed my desire? These are just suggestions. In the end, you've got to find a way to you know, self-examine your heart's desires, to check and see if you've let some of that coveting desire inside your fence. It's an important way that we guard our heart. The third principle for building this fence is to direct your desires to the gifts you have already instead of the ones you don't have. Direct your desires to the gifts you have already instead of the ones you don't have. Parenting continues to teach me so many things about life and about myself, and uh, it's a challenge and all that. Um, But one of the things I've learned recently is that desires are not a fixed thing. They can be redirected. For example, it is a very common thing that Katie lets Peter and Reuben watch a show called Paw Patrol. Um, Some of you guys, who knows about Paw Patrol? Oh, yeah, look at that. All right. Um, She does this while she's working on homework with the older ones and cooking dinner and waiting for me to get home. And so once I'm settled at home, we don't want them watching too much TV, and so I'll pull them away from the show. Here's how it works. They are watching the show, and I say, all right, boys, one more minute, and then we're going to be all done Paw Patrol. Okay. I come back. All right. All done, Paw Patrol. No, Daddy, no, stop, wait, not yet. No, we're all done. Then there's crying and angry screaming, and Peter's yelling, I want to watch Paw Patrol. I want it. (laughs) He does it just like that. Well, Peter's pretty resilient, and he can do angry complaining for a really long time. (laughs) 
And so what I found helpful is to redirect the desire for Paw Patrol into a desire to play cars, which is something he, he also really likes to do. And so I say, Peter, do you want to play cars? No. Ooh, these cars are so much fun. Here's your favorite car. Do you want it? I want it. <laughs> and then he goes and plays cars. <laughs> And, I, you know, sometimes it takes longer than others, but I found this works all over the place. Peter, time to come inside and wash hands. I want to play outside. It's dinner time. Aren't you hungry for dinner? No. But then just a minute later, Daddy, I'm hungry. Most of our literature and movies talk about desire as if it's something you can't control. It just comes upon you, and you have to do your best not to follow it. Well, what I've learned is that desire can be directed. And it can be directed to things that we already have available to us. And this is what we call contentment and gratitude. It's a bit of a different idea to suggest that we should desire things that we already have. You might be thinking, how can you desire something you already have? You already have it. What's the desire? Well, that's the interesting thing about this Hebrew word for covet, kamad. It means to strongly desire, but it's also used in the same way that we use the word treasure. It's a mix of appreciation and enjoyment, but it's all tied to the, this tre- word treasure. It's, you know, it's appreciation, enjoyment, but it's all tied to the fact that it's a gift. Well, when we start treasuring things that we don't have, our desires get all messed up because we weren't meant to treasure things we don't have. God designed us to treasure and enjoy the things we have. Paul says, God lavishly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. We're supposed to savor these things as gifts. So direct the desires of your heart and the treasuring and the enjoyment of your life to the things that he's already lavishly given you. And you'll find it easier to steer clear of coveting desire. The fourth principle for building this fence is to not follow the culture this season. Don't follow the culture this Christmas season. Earlier I talked about how the world around us gets sucked into this materialistic focus as we lead up to the holidays. It's our culture in America. But this part of our culture is broken. And we should not follow what everyone else is doing in this area Holiday spending, even gift giving at Christmas is an area of our culture where you should not be following what the culture is doing. Christmas is a time to celebrate the coming of Jesus to our world. It's a time to gather with family when we all have time off at the same time. It's a time to re-experience and savor good memories. But unfortunately, there's a current in our world and it's a strong current. And it's telling us that Christmas is all about gifts. Now that doesn't sound too bad. But when you look up close at what we often do at Christmas, it's actually a lot closer to spending on behalf of each other rather than gift giving. You see, true gift giving comes without obligation. But our culture is often telling us that we are obligated to give these gifts at Christmas time. Stan Tennant talked about this phenomenon in detail in his sermon in following Christmas last year. Some of you may remember this. It was a tough sermon, Stan, but I felt like it gave us a lot of good things to think about. 
He reminded us that gift-giving is a relatively new phenomenon in our celebration of Christmas. It became a centerpiece of the celebration within like the last hundred years. It's not always the way we've celebrated Christmas. He reminded us that Hallmark's slogan, when you care enough to send the very best, is not a true measure of how much we care. Even gifts are not a true measure of how much we really care. You know, one time I talked to a young person who shared with me that they wished their parents didn't get them so many gifts. Because they knew that by buying all these gifts, they were going deeper into debt as a family. They said they liked the gifts, but they didn't need them. And they didn't want the gifts to be the reason that they struggle financially. I've talked with others in a blended family situation who have said this. I wish my dad was just around more. You know, interested in my life. He shows up at Christmas time with gifts. And I like the gifts, but I'd like to have him around more rather than having all the gifts. Gifts are not the true measure of how much we care. Gifts are just one way to show love. And when they are given out of a sense of obligation, there's just a lot less love being shared. There are lots of ways um, to mitigate the dominance of gift giving at Christmas. You can set a dollar limit on gifts between family members. You can do no gifts between adults, only kids. Um, You can put everybody's name in a hat. As a, as a, you know, as your fam, among your family, and each person gets one person a gift. You, you'd have to initiate these changes, but lots of Christian families do stuff like this with great results. I find that when people ask me, you know, for me personally, what I want for Christmas or my birthday, I find that it stirs up in me this coveting sort of desire that we're talking about today. And so, when my extended family asks me, you know, I, I mostly just share consumables: chocolate-covered pretzels and granola. I don't, I don't want them spending a lot of money on me. And I, I don't want to spend a lot of time thinking about all the things that I would like that I don't already have. Because when I do that, it stirs up in me this coveting desire, and I have a tough time managing it. And in the end, I, I feel like I miss out on the wonder and the beauty and the enjoyment of the Christmas season. You know, I think we also miss out on the significance of the Thanksgiving season. Instead of being thankful for all that we have and enjoying it, We're out buying things at the stores or online. And sometimes, like that statistic says, sometimes it's just for ourselves. We think this makes for a good Christmas for our family. But when I was a kid, it wasn't the gifts that made Christmas. It was making Christmas cookies. It was decorating the tree while listening to Mannaheim Steamroller and Bing Crosby. It was having my dad lay on the floor with us on Christmas morning and play with us. What makes for a good Christmas is playing games, having your relatives over and interacting with them in a way that that only you guys understand because you're family. It's listening to the Christmas story and being in awe of that night. It's having snow on the ground and going out sledding. It's coming to church and seeing all your friends who get it and they understand how much Christmas means to you. And they, they cherish the awe of that night. It's not the presents that make a good Christmas. In fact, the presents often ruin Christmas because they bring greed and disappointment into, uh, into something that has the potential to be such a pure and joyful time. 
What if you expected nothing for Christmas? One of my most memorable gifts was my senior year of high school. I was really trying to follow Jesus that year, and I was trying to make Christmas about Jesus instead of about all the gifts. It was the first year where I basically went in not expecting or wanting anything in particular for Christmas. What do you want for Christmas? Oh, I don't care. I don't, I don't need it, really. Just, just get me something small. Now, if you know me, you know that clothing means so little to me. I really don't care very much about the clothes I wear. Um, my wife picks out my clothes, things like that. Um, so every year, my mom would get me some clothing items. And I think it was because I needed them anyways, and, you know, it beefs up the amount of presents you're getting. And uh, she got me some... Uh, well, my senior year, my mom got me a few button-down collared shirts, you know, among these other gifts that I got, a bunch of other gifts. And I remember thinking, my mom went out to the stores and picked out some shirts that were my size and that she thought would look nice on me. That's really nice. She's, she'd been doing this every Christmas of my life. But this time, I appreciated it. When I didn't follow the culture that year, I began to better treasure the gifts I already had, gifts from God. So this year, I want to encourage you toward contentment, treasuring the gifts you already have, treasuring the people in your life. These things are precious things. Build a fence around your life that will keep out the desires that have the potential to ruin these precious things. Would you stand?